HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, Greenhorns. It's Thursday again, and I'm happy to be here. The show with young farmers, for young farmers, by young farmers, amongst um, the growing ranks of young farmers who are reclaiming the countryside of this fair land. Um, our radio show is once again brought to you by Hearst Family Ranch, and I'm your host, Severin, uh, of the Greenhorns. We are here today joined by my lovely new friend, Arion, who is joining us from Iowa. There, Arion. Hey, how's it going, Severin? Glad to be here. Um, I would love it if you just catch us up with who you are and, and first of all, what you've studied. Well, um, so, uh, like you said, my name's Arian Taboomarine. Last name's kind of uh, unpronounceable, so just go by Arian. And I just uh, finished up my Ph.D. at Iowa State University in a sustainable agriculture graduate program, co-majoring in rural sociology and meat science. And Basically, what I do is I work with small-scale slaughterhouses, and uh, actually, now that I've graduated, I'm still working with small-scale slaughterhouses, and I'm working for a small-scale slaughterhouse. So, um, you know, trying to trying to get both sides of the coin there. So you studied it up to your eyeballs, and now you're up to your you're up to your uh, elbows in in, in the yeah. literal process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yesterday, I was grinding uh, thousands of pounds of bison. Oh my lord. Um. So, first of all, what's amazing is that you are getting studied in sustainable ag at a land-grant university. Would you um, talk a little bit about um, the land-grants and, and what the programs are like and, and how great it is to be able to those things in America? Yeah, sure. Um, well, so I was at Iowa State, and, and I still actually have a postdoc, half-time postdoc appointment and ex, an extension at Iowa State, and... Uh, Iowa State was the first land grant university in the country. Uh, it was the first Iowa was the first state to accept, accept the terms of the Morrill Act, which started the land grant institutions in uh, 1862. And uh, so, it, so it's the oldest land grant. Been working a lot, obviously, with with farmers and agriculture for a very long time. And um, Iowa is also a very industrial agriculture state. Actually, Iowa is the most um, extensively farmed piece of land in the entire United States, meaning that in terms of land area that is Iowa, it has more farmland per the total than any other state in the entire United States. And it's, a lot of it is very intensively or extensively actually a monocrop, a lot of corn and soybeans. And so as you might imagine, that being the dominant form of agriculture, 
uh, land, the land grant university is very dominated by people who are studying corn and soybean genetics and how to uh, more effectively apply pesticides. And um, so it's really a lot of uh, industrialized agricultural thought going on around there. And um, don't get me wrong, there's lots of good people. I mean, and a lot of those folks who are doing that work are, are good people um, who, who very much... Uh, mean well and are nice folks, but uh, you know may not be supporting some of the ideas and concepts around sustainability. We have tremendous problems associated with soil erosion in Iowa, pesticide and fertilizer runoff. You know the city of Des Moines has the largest water denitrification facility of any city in the entire planet because the water that um, feeds the city of Des Moines has such a high level of nitrates, particularly in the spring when people are fertilizing their fields. So it gives you a little bit of a context of Iowa. Um, so the, gradu- the sustainable agriculture program at Iowa State is really um, a lot of faculty who um, started that program, I guess it's about 10 years old now, um, who are coming from different departments, agronomy, horticulture, sociology, animal science, plant pathology. Uh, there's even some people in um, community and regional planning, uh, agric- ag education. So I think there's about 16 departments that are actually part of that, and there's about 50 graduate students. And so... These are all folks who are working with working with existing farmers in Iowa, trying to sort of uh, make to adapt or to to try and change some of this industrial paradigm, this industrial thinking. And uh, actually, it's been very successful. There's quite a few interesting projects going on, from niche pork production to uh, alternative rotations, getting in more forages and more uh, cover crops to mitigate erosion and have to have less uh, fertilizer and pesticide application. So they're, uh, you know, within the heart of this large land-grant university. What's going on, and, and when, when a state is in, in such active cultivation and with such extensive and intensive um, management of the land, keeping that whole system going really requires um, concentration, uh, even if it is an industrial research program. And one of the major um, asks for um, and by... Uh, young farmers and, and sustainable ag advocates is more funding to sustainable ag research and for sustainable ag curriculum in those language universities. So those kinds of programs like you were going through are, of course, what we need in order to reclaim uh, landscapes such as the one in I live in in the Hudson Valley, which is um, abandoned and, and barns falling down. And so it's really exciting um, to hear about the life um, coming out of land and, and the brains like yours, highly accredited brains, um, on on the small and medium scale side of things. Um, what what's going on at this at this slaughterhouse that you're working on right now? Well, right, um, yeah, I'm having a little bit of trouble hearing you, but I'm I think but I I'm getting the gist of what you're saying. Um, the the sl- the right now I have just started working half time at a, a place called Lawrence Meats in uh, Cannon Falls, Minnesota, and Lawrence Meats is. Interesting in uh, in the sense that it really is a sort of medium, approaching a, a, a little bit more of a medium-small size uh, slaughterhouse. For example, a lot of the places that I've been working with in Iowa, um, very small-scale slaughterhouses are what we call them in Iowa uh, meat lockers. Um, they are, you know, maybe they employ 8 to eight to 12 people, and they maybe, um, you know, they, they process uh, maybe 10 to 12 uh, beef animals a week and, um, you know, 14 to 16 hogs a week. Uh, at Lawrence Meats, we, pro- we process about um, 35 to 40 head of beef. Uh, and we do a fair amount of bison, or we might do 60-plus uh, hogs 
in a day. And so it's, it's working with a number of, of regional um, and, and some national brands that are niche brands. For example, Organic Valley, uh, which many folks know from the milk, also has a, a, a meat line called Organic Prairie, and we do a lot of the processing for or the beef for the Organic Prairie. Um, we also work with some local companies around here, uh, Thousand Hills Cattle Company. Uh, we work with a couple of different, like I said, bison companies as well, uh, Golden Bison. And so what really, if we, if we talk about growing agriculture, if we talk about you know, making sustainable agriculture a little bit more on a broad scale, we need a lot, a lot more little farms, but we also need some farms that are agricultural. Fred Kirschman a lot uses the term agricultural in the middle. Who, he happens to be at Iowa State, um, and there are other folks in the Northeast who've been working with this term as well. And so these medium-sized farms, because we've seen a lot of decline in these medium-sized farms, and so we need medium-sized or sort of small-medium-sized processing facilities to accommodate that. Because if you went to a real small locker plant in Iowa and you said, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to serve markets in Minneapolis and I want to kill uh, uh, 25 animals, uh, process 25 animals a week, um, they're going to be completely overwhelmed. They're not going to be able to help you out. And so um, we can do that here at Lawrence Meats. You know, we, we can process that kind of volume and we can get it, um, you know, packaged uh, you know, and palletized in a way such that you can actually move it to uh, lar- you know large food co-ops in Minneapolis and stuff like that. Well, and that that middle scale, um, that middle scale farming that Fred Kirschman talks about, and that frankly the USDA is really eager to see flourish um, quite readily because middle scale, uh, middle class. That means you can afford to send your kids to school. And, and make a, a decent living, although it is possible to, to make a decent living on smaller-scale farming um, if you yeah, are absolutely. really I mean, I, I have, I know. Yeah, I mean, we all know lots of people um, who are making a good go of it, yeah. Yeah. So, so that medium-scale... Um, I would say medium-small, because, you know, the, the big scale in meatpacking is I have 2,000 employees, and, uh, you know, uh, there's a Swift plant... In Marshalltown, Iowa, sort of, a, it's about an hour from Ames, where Iowa State University is, and they process 19,000 hogs a day. So that's a large plan, and they have 2,000 employees. You know, if we do 60 here, uh, you know, maybe we could do 70 or 80 on a good day here at Lawrence Meats. Like, you know, that's just a fraction fra- of a fraction of what they do at these big plants. So I would say we're sort of medium small. Medium small. Yeah. So would you mind explaining a little bit um, for those for those of our listeners who are who are kind of trying to wrap their heads around how um, this slaughtering um, and how the distribution of meat happens in this country and what the kind of megatrends are, like where does the majority of our meat come from, where does it go, and how does it get there? Like, can you break that down as a process? Sure. Well, um, that varies a little bit by species, but let me, um, you know, and, and so uh, industry is, incre- is very consolidated around broiler uh, chickens, broiler poultry, um, increasingly consolidated around hogs, um, and beef may be one of the less consolidated in tr- from a production end. There are a lot of still small-scale, you know, smaller-scale family operations, farmers and ranchers who raise beef, and then what happens is those beef come from these smaller farms and they progress, it, like, where they're, you know, all cattle... It's fair to say that pretty much all cattle in the United States eat grass at some point in their life, that they actually, a majority of their life, um, spend on grass, e- eating grass. And then they go to a feed yard somewhere, um, pro- probably somewhere in the Midwest, 
where they eat a lot of grain and they're fattened. And, you know, I think most of us have heard those stories about these ex- extensive, just mi- like miles, huge, huge feedlots where they just pack these cattle in and they shove a lot of grain down their throats and they get them big and fat. Um, and then they go to extremely large packing houses. And the packing industry, uh, both in in beef and broilers and hogs in the United States is very, very consolidated, particularly in beef and poultry, where the top four firms control over 80% of all the packing. And we're talking, uh, you know, in the, in the United States, um, something about 35 to 37 million, uh, this is a, this is what I'm thinking of recalling, um, beef that are, are processed annually in the United States. And, um, you know, poultry, it's, I don't know, billion, I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge figure. And so all of that meat that we consume, uh, that, or this process in the United States is moving through, you know, or 80% of, 80 plus percent of it is moving through four firms, essentially. So we're talking about super, super consolidation, um, United States, and what that means, though, is that if a lot of that meat is moving through these big firms, if you're not meeting their volumes, if you're not operating in their system, then you're essentially a non-player. And so, slaughterhouse capacity has been very huge for a lot of small to mid-sized producers because they, you know, for example, I raise two beef animals and I want to sell them to my neighbors um, or you know, or friends. I cannot take them to this huge Tyson plant or this huge Cargill plant and say, hey, I'm just going to drop these off. You know, I'm going to pick them up uh, in two weeks from now. Can you guys just make sure I want them cut like this and, you know, just make sure that you keep these two aside and get them back to me. Well, these guys are killing 5,000 animals a day. Um, so they, uh, you know, they, it, it doesn't make sense in their system. They're not interested. It's not worth their time. It's too much trouble. And so that's why we need, we need small-scale meat packers who can handle, who can work with those, you know, we here at Lawrence Meats, we work with over 300 independent producers throughout the year, and then we worked with a, you know, a, um, a half dozen uh, branded programs. And so, you know, we're working with people, with people who are bringing in 30, you know, 35 uh, to 40 animals uh, at one time, and we're processing them all to their specifications, and then people who just bring in one animal that's going to, you know, four different people. Uh, and we take those individual cutting orders and make sure everybody gets it how they want. And so... So, so there we are. We, we're, we've processed the meat when we understand how different you are, like the big guys. But um, after the animals are processed, how does the, um, how does the shipping happen? And, and how does the scale of the shipping uh, differ? And, like, I just am talking to a lot of folks who are doing, like, distribution of pork to restaurants and realizing, like, what a ninja show it is, like, trucking for these smaller quantities of meat and staying competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, do you take it all the way to the plate? That really, um, we for for most of the stuff we do, we actually we're not here at Lawrence Meats. We're not responsible for those kind of logistics. Basically, we ship it to where the customer wants it. So, for example, there is a company. Um, there are actually just two folks that were in the office here from it called Thousand Hills Cattle Company. That's also based out of Cannon Falls, and they do 100% grass-fed beef. And they have a, a warehouse here in Cannon Falls where they fill their orders from. And so we do. You know, they bring our cattle into here. They bring their cattle into here. We process it according to their cutting specifications and how they want it packaged, and then we send it to them on it boxed and, and on a pallet with with a, a list that says here's everything that you got and the number of pounds they have. 
And then their customers, which are, are restaurants and food co-ops and, um, you know, uh, and other stores, they then handle the shipping logistics for that. And they have a truck. You know, if somebody's ordering, high, uh, ordering some large volume, they may use an outside contractor, but I know that they do a lot of trucking logistics themselves. I can't honestly say that I know all of the details about how they make every single delivery, but I do know they basically had to... Um, I know they had some rough... It was rough for them when they were first starting up because it's hard to justify the infrastructure of a building and a truck and a guy to drive a truck and all that kind of investment when you don't have a significant volume of cattle. And so what we're finding based on customers here at uh, Lawrence Meats and, and I found in other work at Iowa State University and I was working on my PhD um, that you you kind of need to get to that point that you're moving about it. That if you're going to have a branded meat program or you're selling cuts um, to individual rest, to restaurants and institutions, um, you know, and those kind of volumes, you're probably going to need to be processing a thousand animals a year. You know, if you're doing less than 500, to have the capital or the cash flow in your business to pay somebody who, you know, to to get a truck, to lease a warehouse, to pay somebody to manage the warehouse, to pay somebody to drive the truck, um, you're just not going to have that kind of money. It's just not going to work out. Well, that really speaks to the fact of why it's critical that the folks who are entering into this into this marketplace and entering as you know, business people in the food system and really becoming a part of the infrastructure that moves good food from from the field to the state. You've really yeah. got to be on your toes to figure out how to how to have adequate profitability and be at the right scale to have to really make a viable business out of it and and not then sell both the eaters and the farmers by messing up the middle because it does seem like that middle that middle part of the equation um, can be the determining factor between. Um, you know, and a it, durable it can, system. And, and, and it can be a very rough business. Oops, excuse me. Uh, and it can be a it can be a really rough business. Um, you know, there. I mean, we've all. I, I've definitely heard a lot of stories about people trying to make a go at meat companies and their very thin margins, um, and trying to compete with uh, you know industrial meat and the economies of scale that they have, and and really having a hard time. I mean, I've definitely heard about a lot more companies that didn't make it than those that did. But I would say, you know, on the bright side, there are a lot of really good things for, for very small-scale producers who are just doing direct marketing. I, you know, I truly do believe that somebody who's selling halves, holes, and quarters or maybe bundles directly to people they know, people at work, friends and family, neighbors, uh, and just, you know, let's say I raise 10 to 20 animals a year and I just sell them as quarters, I know a lot of people who are doing that because it's low capital, you have low investment, you know, your time is just selling those quarter animals to folks. You know, you don't have to maintain an inventory of cuts. You don't have to have delivery trucks to, to manage it all or a warehouse or anything like that. You say, hey, you say, I take in five animals at a time, four times a year, and right now I've got, you know, 20 customers, each one a quarter, and so they give their cutting instructions to the meat plant. I send the animals in. They have it cut exactly how they want, and they pick it up. And that way I have no inventory management. I have no capital overhead in terms of, of holding it. And I made all my sales in a relatively quick amount of time. I didn't have to go around uh, you know, knocking on a lot of doors in order to sell it. And so I do think so the real opportunity... For somebody who is trying to get into the meat business, and it does seem like there's, there's a lot of room to grow, a lot of people interested, especially in you know, gastro places like New York and San Francisco and all the other cities, um, but if you're interested to get into that business as a grower um, or as a brand person, it would start 
starting small seems, seems like it would be a really good strategy and getting your getting your brand and your integrity and your quality and understanding the logistics before leaping leaping in further. Is that would that be Ab- your absolutely starting with some of those direct sales and you know if somebody really wants to take on you know restaurant clients uh, you know it's it, for a you know prestige and promotion. Uh, you know, if you can find restaurants that are interested in buying an animal and the portions in which it comes, that i.e., like a a quarter or a half or a whole animal, um, really that can save you a lot of time uh, and 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 a lot of expense. Well, thank. I mean, that's really great. So well, I wanted to ask, give you a chance to talk about something you felt like you wanted to talk about. I don't know if you wanted to talk about Department of Justice uh, hearings or something else. What what's what's that hot on your mind? Um, well, there, there. I mean, I um, there are a couple hot topics. <laughs> uh, one of those is, you know, uh, is I, I, di- I did, I do really want to encourage folks to to work more with their processor. There's a lot of antagonism, I think, between small uh, small plants and excuse me, small small scale producers and small scale processors. You know, one of the issues that really we faced a lot and the extension work I've been doing with small plants uh, initially came into this area look, talking with producers and them saying, oh, my gosh, there's not that much small-scale processing capacity. It's really, really difficult. And that's true to a degree. There is not a lot of small-scale processing capacity. However, um, in, the pro- in the meat processing businesses I found out over the years is that it really can be a kind of feast or famine business in the sense that um, a lot of producers bring in animals in the fall. A lot of farmers and ranchers, you know, that's when they want to, you know, particularly if it's beef animals, they want to calve in the spring, and then 18 to 20 months later those animals are ready, which means they bring them in the fall. So what often happens is that everybody calls at the same time and says, hey, I want to get these animals in there, um, but they're all calling at the same time. And so the processor says, look, I'm really busy. I can fit you in in three months, but I can't fit you in right now. And so farmers get really frustrated. However, if people sort of tried to adjust their production cycles a little bit and maybe spread it out a little bit more over the year, then we could better utilize the processing capacity that we have. Because I guarantee you that the the processor, if you you tell a processor that I'm going to bring you, you know, Four animals in the spring and four animals in the and four animals in the fall. They're going to be a lot more likely to try and fit you in because the spring's going to be a slow time with them, for them. And so, come, so my original point about working more closely with processors and working together with processors is trying to understand a processing business is a fixed facility. There's a lot of overhead. You got to keep people employed year round if you're going to keep them around. And so the processor is trying to manage a lot of those logistics, and they're not going to expand to make more room for farmers in the fall and grow their business if they're going to be really, really slow in the spring. It just doesn't make financial sense for them to do that. And so you are seeing some models out there where groups of producers are better coordinating with processors. They're scheduling on a year-round basis. They're trying to make sure that they're taking advantage of that existing capacity because, you know, we're talking about building a new slaughterhouse at a small scale. We're still talking a million dollars to $2 million. And so for somebody to put that kind of kind of capital on the line, they want to know that it's busy. Um, And frankly, we can bitch and moan about a lot of things, but when it comes to a a really critical facility in your region, it's a hell of a lot easier to nudge them in the right direction than to put them out of of business. And even if they cut your meat improperly, I mean, then it's probably better to figure out how to uh, 
gently and saucily and, you know, help them to be able to cut this better than to... Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, just as with with any relationship, business or otherwise, you know, communication is very important. You know, not and and not yelling at people and getting all pissed off, uh, and just saying, you know, here's here's my needs, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. How can we make this work? You know, I know that, you know, if producers say that, you know, I know that obviously you start any dialogue like that, it's much more likely to work out. And so, um, you know, the I guess, I guess the, the biggest, yeah, that is the biggest point I ever want to make to folks who are raising livestock and interested in the meat business is that we, ha- you know. Capacity, meat processing capacity is an issue, but part of dealing with that capacity issue is, the, is scheduling and making sure that we're using it as much as we can because there's just, like I said, there's a lot of guys out, there's a lot of, and I, there's a lot of guys out there who run processing, and I say guys because most of the time it is men who are running these processing businesses, um, who are, who, who would expand, who would grow, but they're afraid to make, you know, because they say, look, I'm really busy this time of year, and I feel like we could do it, but I'm get, I have these two months, you know, let's say it's March and, and April in the spring, where we're just kind of get, where we just get too slow to justify it. And so they're on the edge, they're going back and forth. Um, and so well, that's... I want to give you a chance. I mean, your insight is so wonderful, and I, would lo- I wonder if I'm allowed to have you back again. I'm definitely... I want to come and apprentice myself. Um, <laughs> well, you're you're welcome to have it. You come out like I told you before. You know, come if you're out here in uh, southern Minnesota sometime. You gotta, I'm gonna have to give you a tour of the plant. It is an, it's oh a nice facility. Oh my god, I'm so excited. Well, we're we're going out. To, we're going to be in Michigan in June doing a um, a mixer in Detroit. So that might be possible. Well, it's um, probably only you know. I wanted to make sure that you plug. Will you plug your um your book? Uh, well, yeah. There's. Uh, it's. It's not. It's not a book in the formal sense. I mean, it's more of a guide for. Uh, it's called a, be- a beef and pork whole animal buying guide, and it's available from Iowa State University Extension. We're trying to work out something where the USDA is going to reprint it for free. I'm optimistic about this, but still, uh, they're getting some. You know, government budgets are tight right now, uh, as we've all heard. And so trying to work that out. But basically, it's you want to buy, you know, the be- as I mentioned before, the best way to support small-scale producers is to buy meat in halves, holes, and quarters, such that it, it makes logistics easier for everybody, and it's a great way to save a lot of money. You know, you can fit a half hog in a normal home freezer, um, should be able to fit a quarter of beef in there as well, um, or buy a chest freezer, you know, go out and spend the 150 bucks. Uh, you know, I, it's one of the best investments I've ever made, and that way I get all the really good meat anytime I want it. It's just downstairs in my chest freezer. And um, so buying meat defrost like that... Defrost your way to lower cholesterol. I'm sorry? I said defrost your way to a lower cholesterol. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you can defrost really quickly just by putting it in water. And um, so anyway, so the... the the book is called The Beef and Pork Whole Animal Buying Guide, and it's just you want to buy halves, holes, and quarters, here's how. Here's all the things you need to think about. Here's what, you know, you're going to talk with the producer about buying on the live animal weight or the hanging weight, recommend buying on the hanging weight. You know, here uh, the last two sections are, um, you know, beef and pork cuts that come out of the different primals of an animal. There are eight primals on beef and four primals on a, on a pork. Um, and, you know, here are the different cuts that come out of there, and, and he talks a little bit about cooking some of them, and um, it also talks a lot about um, labeling and handling and all this other information that you, that you would want to know if you're buying animals this way, which is, again, in my opinion, the best way to support small-scale producers uh, and support local agriculture. Well, you can say here first, the best way to support 
small-scale producers, and if you happen to have a hankering to get of your very own self in this bioregion of New York, I want to make sure that I plug away on our vernal equinox hogget cook-off. We will be uh, butchering a hogget, which is a year-old lamb or a young mutton, um, at Kinderhook Farm on March 20th and 21st in our, in our fair Columbia County, inaccessible, um, RSVP required. Um, and we just heard national confirmation from a wonderful set of um, nature center tracker people, Indian-type Indian skills. Um, who are going to be uh, tanning the hide of the of the hogget, and we'll wow. be cooking it all up um, and full live music. Come, come, come! The other other um, plug before we get off the air is this weekend in Burlington, Vermont. Um, I'm on my way up right now to to get ready for it. We're going to do a mixer at the uh, firehouse in cooperation with High Milling Seeds and Vermont Nofa. Um, that's a free event. Young farmers and uh, young farmer affiliated enthusiasts, um, you'll join us there. And every week on our radio show, this has been yet once again Young Farmers by Young Farmers Greenhorn Radio with Arian. Arian, is there people can find you in the internet world? Will you tell them your whole name? Uh, Arian Tiboumeri, last name T is in Thomas, H I B is in boy, O U M is in Mary, E R Y. And uh, my email address is my first name, A-R-I-O-N, at I-A-State, I-A-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. And, uh, yeah, I, get, I, love, uh, I love to answer questions and hear what folks are up to in other parts of the country with uh, meat and meat processing. So, um, yeah. Well, I just, speaking, speaking, speaking as a person um, who cares a lot about these issues and um, loves to know that the network is strong, I'm just so thrilled when I met you and so glad that we have... Uh, someone as charismatic and fluent in this language as we did in this movement. So I, I cherish your, you and your work, and I'm so thankful for your joining us today. Um, and thank you to our audience, and thank you to Heritage Radio and Hearst Ranch, and goodbye. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Severin. Bye-bye. Bye.